So we have been studying, obviously, in a series through prayer, and um, about three, four, four weeks ago now, we began into a kind of a subsection that we entitled The Power of Prayer, and we have spoken on praying in the name of Jesus, contending in prayer, the Holy Spirit in prayer, and I'm going to continue this morning as well in that same trajectory and um, going to speak on prayer for healing, prayer for healing. And uh, I was thinking about it this week as just as I was studying and preparing for today, that prayer is rather, rather pretty remarkable in that it is a divine means that the Lord has given for affecting both natural and spiritual change on the earth. And I think sometimes, and I'll speak more on this, that we, we limit, I think, not we don't limit what God does, but we limit our faith by having a narrow view of things of the faith at times. And I think prayer is one of those, or at least I'll say that for me, and perhaps you could agree, where I feel like the Lord has really just begun to expand my understanding of his purpose for prayer, the significance in it, why he's given it to us, the power that resides within it, the beauty, the marvel that we, and the awe that we participate in as we engage in prayer. And so I just want to say, let's continue together to pursue, and, and not, not um, separate from what I said a moment ago, just about our prayer meetings, but let's stay persistent. And, and even perhaps when we finally finish our series on prayer, let's continue to give ourselves to understanding it more and more and to honing that habit. So prayer is a divine means for affecting both natural and spiritual change. And I think that when we understand it this way, that prayer then becomes one of the most significant habits of a Christian man or woman. And I think it also becomes one of the most powerful habits of a Christian man or woman. When we understand the means for which God has given it to his people, Think of this, the God, the, the absolute holy, the transcendent, the all-powerful, the omniscient, the immutable creator. Think about that for a moment, all those things that I just said. The, the transcendent, the completely otherly God. Holy, all-powerful, omnipresent, never-changing. Here is this being, this Lord, who has chosen to commune, who has given a means by which he can relate and commune and communicate with his people. And a means by which his people can effect change on earth through the power of his spirit. That's a remarkable truth. One that I don't think, even when I say that, I don't think our hearts fully grasp the significance of what I have just said. He's designed prayer, and he, he maintains it as a means by which we, limited, we mortal, we finite individuals, completely other than him, and often, I would say, probably a bit fickle creatures as well. He's provided a means by which we can commune with him, that we can have intimacy with him, that he might speak to us. He speaks to us through prayer, brothers and sisters. God is always desired to be among his creation. Think of it that way. As Genesis says in the beginning, that he walked in the garden. It says that Adam and Eve heard the Lord walking in the garden. And then, of course, we know that he bookends that with Revelation 21. And as, the new, as a picture that John has of the new heaven and the new earth, and John sees the J Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven in a loud voice that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so we have these bookends of a picture of God's intention of being present with his people, with his creation. And so I believe then if we have this picture of the two, then that has to affect our understanding of the present. So what then has he given to us in light of the fall? And I'll speak more of the effects of the fall upon our lives. But in light of this reality of this truth, that it's God's intention to dwell with his people, what means has he given to us now in this state, in this current fallen state, but yet the kingdom of God also being present? And I'll speak more on that as well. So this is what we've been studying. This is what we have been pursuing in our 
efforts through prayer these last couple of months to understand God's design, his purpose, our approach, our right, the kinds of prayer that he's given to us to engage in, we've looked at. We've looked at the work of the Holy Spirit, the great effector of change in prayer. And so today, as I said, I want to speak on on the power of prayer, that is prayer for healing. And I think it's important to begin with defining what healing, what I mean by healing when I say that. Most often I think that we, when we think of healing, we think of bodily or physical healing, praying for cancer, praying for disease, praying for ailments perhaps. And of course we see that within the New Testament, that's present and that's right. But as I said, I think having a, a, a limited or a singular understanding or a singular faith expectation by which God wills to heal, I think we limit or we reduce, if you will, our expectation when it's more singular in focus. So when we speak of healing, we must understand that God's design is to restore not just the physical body alone. God does not intend to just heal the physical but restoration in God's kingdom extends to the mind and the spirit of the individual as well. To this, throughout the New Testament, often when it speaks of healing, the Greek word that is used speaks of both to cure, which is the physical, as well as to make whole in spirit, which is the spiritual. That's the Greek word that is often used throughout the different moments when we see healing take place. And I was thinking of this, after all, is this not God? how God has created us to be? He's created us both equally material and immaterial. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils this breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Therefore, we can deduce from this that mankind is both equally of the dust of the ground and of the breath of life. So therefore, too, healing must also extend. Healing must also extend to the immaterial as well as the material. But obviously, this isn't to just lessen the importance of the physical, right? We know that Scripture has much to say about the material body that we have been given by God as well. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we won't turn to just because of time, I'm just trying to lay a groundwork for what I want to say here later this morning. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, Paul has much to say about the physical body. And let me just tell you a few of the things. He says that our bodies were redeemed by Christ Jesus and not just our souls. Our bodies were redeemed by Christ Jesus. He says in verse 13 that they are designed for the Lord. Your body is designed for the Lord. Our bodies are members of Christ Jesus. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 19. Our bodies are capable of being sinned against. Our bodies should be used to glorify God, in verse 20. And then later in chapter 15, he says, of course, our bodies will be raised from death to life. So it isn't one over the other, and it isn't one to be elevated and one to be diminished, but both are important. So therefore, to build up a theology, I would say that does not include the care and the well-being of the physical body as well is to disregard the very work of the creator and the high value that he himself has imbued within his creation. And I think this is so important because to understand God's intention in healing, we must begin with the understanding of God's view of creation. What does God think about that which he has created? Because how God thinks is vitally important to us. Wouldn't you agree? So we must have a theology of creation. So whether it's concerning abortion or whether it's concerning rights to life or euthanasia or other important matters of right to life or acts of mercy or matters concerning healing like I'm speaking of this morning, our beginning point, the basis by which we think, and that we act from must be the same as God's. 
What inherent value has God placed within this being, within this individual, within this circumstance? And how do my pursuits and how do my actions then uphold the standard of worth that he has given? Does this make sense? We see two important truths when we return to the origins of creation. The first is that that which God has created as male and female were created in the image of the creator. This is me speaking of the inherent value within creation, God's view of that which he created. It tells us that he's created male and female in the image of the creator. This is why we speak of being image bearers. This is what it means to be an image bearer. We have been created like Christ created in in his image. And then secondly, we see that after the completion of the creation act, there is a proclamation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, to close out, if you will, the opening saga of creation. God makes a pronouncement after surveying all that he created. He says that it was very good. This is God's thought towards his creation. Brothers and sisters, we have to this builds towards what I'll speak of in a moment, of having a mind towards compassion. We have to have in our thinking the same inherent value of worth that God places on that which is created, that motivates us and moves us ourselves in compassion to then pray and extend faith towards someone or a certain circumstance. So he pronounces it very good. In other words, it wasn't lacking. There was nothing that was lacking within creation. Isn't that amazing? God looked at it and he went, that is it. I nailed it. He might even went, oh, oh. If that was like 2002, he might have done that. But what's even more wonderful is that he didn't even just leave it at that. He didn't just look at it and say, man, this is good. No, then what he did is having pronounced it very good, God demonstrates its intrinsic value that he placed into it by engaging in extensive and ongoing sovereign control over all aspects of it, preserving and and controlling it according to his perfect will. Providence. God then said, this is amazing, this is perfect, this is beautiful. And then he engages now in the ongoing stability and maintaining of the creation which he has made. He told us how good it was, in other words, and then he showed us by caring for it. So the restoration of creation must begin with a recognition of creation's value and God's ongoing concern for it. Second to this is the important understanding of sin's effects upon God's creation. So we understand the value that God has placed into it. Then we also now must understand the effects that sin has had upon it. The fall brought with it sickness and death. God did not place sickness and death in the garden. The fall of man, man's disobedience, brought sickness and death into the world. Therefore, it was not within God's design nor his desire for creation. Nor did it change God's intention to care for that which he created. In fact, I would say it only magnified God's intention. And we don't have time to look at it, but but the, 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 the pronouncement of Advent we find within Genesis right after the fall where God begins to speak of and and prophesy of the Savior, of the Messiah, that will one day come. As quickly as sin enters, God says, but here is the hope for the fall that has just taken place. So God's intent is, is then magnified to care for it through his sovereign providence. And it's today in his infinite wisdom, providentially, that God uses sickness, as we know. He uses trial He uses adversity. He uses suffering that comes as a result of sickness to bring about his purposes within his creation. That's providence. We must also have a theology of suffering and sickness. But not only does he use it, but he confirms the truth that death and sickness are in opposition to his design by making provision 
for healing through the cross of Jesus Christ and overcoming death through his resurrection. He tells us how sickness and death are in opposition to that which he originally intended. He makes, he makes a way through, through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we're redeemed from the curse of sin when he died on the cross. And remember what I said moments ago as Paul said that he doesn't just redeem the physical, but he also redeems the spiritual as well. Look with me, if you would please, in Isaiah chapter 53. Am I moving too fast? Yeah, all right, I'll slow down. I think I got a little excited from singing that first song. Isaiah 53. This is in speaking of God's dealings with sin and death and the pronouncement of what he would do through Christ Jesus. Let's begin actually in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquaintance with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, what does it say? We are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, it's today, it's through the kingdom of God that we now see and taste what will one day fully be realized. The inauguration of the kingdom of God, along with all of the amazing and profound reality that it has brought for the people of God, has brought with it this understanding and this truth of the provision for the healing that God will one day show to all of those when, when he returns and when the new heaven and the new earth is created. And there is no more sickness and there is no more death, but the kingdom of God glimpses God's heart of what will one day be in eternity. That is his intention through the kingdom. This is what he speaks of here. In prophesying of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, he prophesies not of just his coming, but what he will accomplish. And so it is through the cross of Jesus Christ that we as believers can find hope, that we find stability and belief in the fact that he has made provision for the restoration of not just the soul, not just the spiritual, but also for the physical body as well. Does that make sense? Think about this. If God had only made provision for some of the fall's effects, would that truly be redemption? If he only redeemed our soul, but yet left us to just waste away quickly and without hope. I think, too, this reveals something about his nature. When we look throughout Scripture, we can see that it builds for us a biblical theology of this restoration, of a complete and utter redemption in its totality. I think I was thinking of the story of Ruth and Boaz. And we won't have time to get into it, but just to say the, this picture of the kinsman redeemer as part of, as part of the, the Levitical law that God brings in, the story essentially is that Boaz becomes through a series of events Ruth's kinsman redeemer, and therefore he's required by law to, to then care for her, to take up for her, if you will, her concerns and her well-being. And But what we find, though, is that Boaz's redemption of Ruth is not just right to the letter of the law, but Boaz actually redeems her above and beyond that which is required of him. Is that not a picture for God's intention? The, Ruth, within the, within the Old Testament, is such, a, a, it so speaks of the Messiah, even though it literally doesn't speak of the Messiah. It's in the canon because of the picture that it gives us. And so that being one of many examples, when we look throughout the, the Old Testament and we look throughout the scriptures, we're given and built this biblical theology of redemption, that God does not just redeem in part, 
but he redeems in total. And that must then include, the logical explanation is that it also, again, includes the physical body as well. I know I'm taking a lot of time, but I just felt like we needed to build a a foundation for which we would then pursue our faith efforts in healing. So as redeemed men and women, living presently in a fallen world, we must have an understanding and therefore an action for the fallenness that exists around us today. Not just for our own. Not faith that we would just pray for our children or pray for family or pray for ourselves, but that we would see the fallenness around us and pray for the restoration of it. So this takes us then to what we believe about the kingdom of God. We've spoken much about the kingdom of God over the last 18 months. We've taught on it. We've explained it. What is the kingdom of God? In fact, Rick spoke a few weeks ago. The kingdom of God is the king's rule in the king's place over the king's people. It has a, a literal and a, in a almost physical territory, if you will, here on earth today, inaugurated by Jesus Christ. And what we believe about the kingdom of God, what we believe about its reach, the extent of which it can grasp, the authority of which it has been established in, directly affects what we believe about healing as well. Turn with me to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. This is another well-known text. We'll just listen to it in light of the significance of the kingdom pronouncement. This is Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4. He says this, beginning in verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and he reads from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was not just a pronouncement of the spiritual redemption that came through Christ Jesus, but this also included an extension. It was a pronouncement of the extension of the kingdom of God to say, listen, the kingdom of God is now present. The kingdom of God is here. It's embodied in a man, Jesus Christ. And I love the way that Matthew, and we looked at this when we studied through Matthew, but we can see such a logical progression of the, of the, of the establishment to the, um, um, to the exemplifying, to the modeling of the kingdom, to then the extension of the kingdom of God just through the few first chapters of Matthew. It begins in Matthew 3 where John the Baptist makes a pronouncement and he says that the kingdom of God is near in Matthew 3. And then in Matthew chapter 4, it's having Jesus gone through the temptation in the wilderness directly following that, having been baptized and gone into the wilderness for 40 days and been tempted by Satan, he then says the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand, Jesus says. And then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he begins to speak on the ethics of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom itself. And then in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, having spoke on the values, he then begins to model the ways of the kingdom and the lifestyle of the kingdom by healing. He heals lepers. He calms a storm in Matthew 8 and 9. He casts out demons. He heals a paralytic. He heals the fevered, and he heals many others, it says, in those two chapters. So he says, the kingdom of God is here. This is what it looks like. And then he begins to say, this is how the kingdom of God acts. And then what do we find directly following that in Matthew chapter 10? Jesus appoints the 12, and he commissions them to go in the same way that he had just modeled the kingdom in chapters 8 and 9. And he says, now you go And he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, proclaiming as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. All of that, all of that primarily was physical. Heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. 
And then Luke, in his gospel, will record shortly after the commissioning of the 12, the commissioning of the 72, where Jesus sends out then shortly after 72 to do the exact same thing. So brothers and sisters, we must see that the kingdom of God, if we believe in the kingdom of God and if we believe in the establishment of the kingdom here on earth, that it comes with it a commission to do these very things. And as we've said before in, in Luke, sorry, in Acts chapter 1, where it speaks of that which Jesus did and Luke records that now I'm going to record all the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth. There is a logical flow from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of his church. Do you believe that today? And it's, I know it's hard to, we can say yes, we believe it, and it's all right to be uncertain as to how that will work. But it has to begin with an understanding here and here of what does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? What can I expect and where is and what is the basis of my faith? We have to begin to believe with such faith that healing is the way of the kingdom. Healing is the way of the kingdom. We have to be convinced. We have to be convinced. And to the question of whether God still heals, still heals, some would say that the authority to do so ended with the apostolic age and that it no longer continues today. You might have heard that argument made before. To that I would say I would appeal to a biblical theology, not to one singular text or a couple of texts. I would appeal to a biblical theology of creation and sickness. Does God desire to restore his creation? The answer is yes, he does. And then to what extent? We know that it will be utter and complete one day. And if so, if he desires to restore his creation, what part does his kingdom then play in this restoration process? And what do we deduce are the works of the church based off of what scripture tells us, like I just spoke of from Matthew, from what we see. It's no different. Do we believe in the Trinity? There's no specific text that teaches us about the Trinity, but a biblical theology builds this picture of the triune God working together to bring about his purpose. Biblical theology, brothers and sisters, comes from reading the word of God. It comes from studying the word of God. We can't just open the Bible and look for the one text that speaks about this. We must look at the whole of Scripture and allow the whole of Scripture to influence us. And when we do, I believe that we are confronted with a very cl clear view of God's value for creation, His desire for creation, the beauty and the power of restoration, and of course the authority of the kingdom of God. I think we're confronted with all of those. So does God still heal? I would say unequivocally, yes, he does. I've seen it in my lifetime. I'm praying for it. I'm asking that the Lord would revive that in his church. And I'm gonna speak more on that here in just a moment. Because the question then is if he heals, then why does he heal? Why does God heal? Healing, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, is a supernatural activity through which God causes awe and wonder within the recipient and the witnesses of that who are around. And it bears witness to himself. It's a miracle. Healings are miracles. Salvation is a miracle. And it's intended to cause awe and wonder on the recipient or on those who were to witness that which he is Done. So it bears witness to himself. And Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. In speaking of the gifts of prophecy which God has given to his church, Paul says that if in the gathering, if in, on this Sunday, if prophecy takes place and an unbeliever is present, Paul says this, that he is convicted, he is called to account and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I want that more than anything. 
And I'm not just saying it has to be on a Sunday. I'm not saying that this has to be the place where only God moves. But I'm, saying, I'm telling you, I was talking to a believer yesterday, and I was saying, if we don't see it in the church, how can we expect it outside of the church? In that, because the church is comprised of individuals. If we don't see the gifts of the Spirit, if we don't see the power of God moving in ways in our own lives individually, and therefore when we come together corporately, why would we expect to see it outside? I believe it speaks of something. Whether it's faith or whether it's understanding, I don't know. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, I believe that as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, that this day and age in which we live necessitates a mighty move of the power of God. It's the power, it's the Spirit of God that attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. It's not my words. It's not how well I'm able to argue and articulate different points in in some type of discourse. What's going to convert and to move men and women's hearts is the Spirit of God. And I want to see the Spirit of God move in a mighty way. I'm praying for it. I've said this to you recently. I am asking the Lord for it. I am seeking in my own self to understand better, a a more robust theology of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives to his church. I believe it, and I think the church and the world needs to see it. When healing occurs, it gives evidence that God is truly at work. These are some reasons. Why does God heal? Firstly, it gives evidence that God is truly at work. And it serves to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. God heals because his gospel is advanced when he heals. The message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is spread when God heals. In addition, healing attests to the presence and ever-expanding kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, wherein the rule and the authority of the king is manifested and the benefits of his rule are extended towards his people. This is why God heals. God heals, healing, because healing attests to the compassion and the mercy of God towards his creation. For God so loved, is that not just the theme that is woven all throughout redemptive history? For God so loved, And healing is a continual and a constant reminder of this truth. And lastly, God heals in order to bring glory to himself. And I thought of this, the story that we we hear, it's recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, where Jesus says that the man who has been blind from birth was blind so that, and Jesus says, the works of God might be displayed in him. His disciples, seeing this man blind, he says, what sin caused this man to be blind? Was it his parents or was it his own sin? And Jesus says, it's neither. He was blind from birth and we have no clue how old this individual was. But he was blind from birth, it says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is amazing. That just brings into view a context for suffering in the providence of God. God allowed this man to be blind his entire life up to that point, so that in that moment, the power of God would be revealed through his life and attested to, and the kingdom of God would be advanced, and the mercy of God would be made known, and the benefits of the kingdom would be extended to another individual, and so on and so on. And he receives glory. Amen? What a, what a remarkable uh, picture that is. So, Again, for those who would ask whether healing continues as an act of his people today, I would also appeal to the words of Jesus in Mark's account of the Great Commission. In Mark chapter 16 and verses 15 through 18, Jesus says this, in, in the Great Commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And he says this, and these signs will accompany those who believe. And he lists a few things, and we'll leave out the grabbing of snakes because we don't have time to probably figure that one out right now. (laughs) But in my name they will cast out demons, he says. And he says that they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. These signs will accompany 
Who? The twelve? The real holy and righteous? Those who have been trained in the five spiritual gifts and have received their card identifying which one they hold? No. He says these signs will accompany those who believe. Those who believe. Raise your hand if you are one who believes. You are one who believe. You are one then whose these signs should follow. And again, I understand it's a long way from here to here. It's a long journey sometimes that truth takes. But nonetheless, we have to believe that it is true. It is true, brothers and sisters. This is what God has intended for his church. And again, and I've just been, and I find myself most every morning right now reading over and over again 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and I am constantly struck by verse 7 where he says to each, to each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given for all who believe these signs will accompany them. The disciples believe this We know it because Acts is filled with these Acts. That's why it's called Acts. Primarily because it's Acts like these. We don't have to go far, but how do we read Acts and yet we so quickly disassociate the Acts of the early church with the church today? That's not condemnation. That's just me being honest with you. I do the same thing sometimes. I don't reason it away, but, in, but even in my subconscious, I just go, ah, that's Acts. We who believe. The Lord, would you revive it in us today? Please, Lord Jesus. Yeah, maybe we will choke a snake or two. I don't know. I feel like some of you might be more inclined to that than others. Jamie Purdy, I'm looking at you. The disciples believed it, the early church believed it, the apostles believed it, of course, and acted accordingly in faith, and many signs and wonders were done. I was reading, too, this week that some who would say that the, that the um, gifts of the Spirit ceased with the apostles also give a, a logic that when we look at the book of Acts, we see that it kind of just slowly trickles away, that Paul, less and less, and because he talks about like Epaphroditus, Paul was not able in his prayer to heal Epaphroditus, and of course, Paul suffered from his own ailments as well. And so there's this kind of this theology of healing that's been built around, well, like it just slowly dwindled. But I was reading in the book of Acts at the very end of Paul's ministry, when he ends up on the island of Malta, it says that he healed everyone that came to him that was sick. They were super hospitable. They fed them. They gave them shelter and warmth after the shipwreck. And, and he cast out a demon and then everybody comes at sick and, and Acts tells us. That's Acts 28. That's the end of Acts. I love it. It's not ended, you guys. He was just getting started, I think. And by that, I mean God. So let me just speak with the last few minutes that are left on four key components that I believe. I use the word component, put it in air quotes. There's not a, there, is, there is not a formula to healing. That is not what I'm saying. These are just truths. Four truths to healing accounts that are regularly seen throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's a combination of one or two. Sometimes all of them are present. Again, there's not a method, but it's four things that I believe that we can pursue understanding in and we can pursue growth in. The first is faith, quite simply. As the one engaged in prayer, faith is our confidence in God's character. Faith is our confidence specifically in his heart for healing. God is overflowing with compassion and healing and that's a window into his heart towards his creation. Faith is also an act of self-denial and an admittance of our inability to do anything apart from God's sovereign providence. Faith is required because faith acknowledges that we in ourselves cannot heal someone. Raise your hand if you can heal someone on your own. I've got Benny Hinn's number in my back pocket. 
I'm going to make millions off you. No, faith is an admittance that we cannot do it on our own. But it comes. It's also an admittance that it comes from a compassionate God who loves his creation, who esteems it highly and desires to restore it and is restoring it fully one day. Faith is a key aspect of the healing accounts all throughout Scripture, both as a facilitator, whereas in Jesus would say, your faith has made you well. Said that in multiple accounts. It's present as a facilitator, but it's also present as a hindrance. Where Mark chapter 6 records that Jesus in Nazareth, in his hometown, he says that there was a lack of, the, the lack of faith that was present kept Jesus from performing miracles that day. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus didn't lack faith. But somehow the people that were present, because of their over-familiarity, isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that, isn't that Jonas that was always like hanging out here? That over-familiarity, it, it, it breeded this inability to actually, for Jesus to perform miracles that day. They lacked faith, is what it tells us. They lacked faith. I was not comparing you with Jesus. Let's just be clear of that. Don't get too big-headed, son. So he says, your faith has made you well to the woman who touched him in the crowd. And on the other, he says, the lack of faith did not allow him. He was, it's, it's funny, it was like, it says that in Mark 6, he, he healed like a few people. You're like, ah, you know, a couple miracles here, but really I didn't get to do my big ones because you guys didn't have any faith. So building a strong biblical theology for healing strengthens our faith. It strengthens our faith. It strengthens our expectation. It strengthens our boldness, doesn't it? I'm telling you, I believe it's only going to take a couple. It's only going to take a couple to spark the move that I believe God is going to do in this day and age. I believe it. I believe it fully that we are going to begin to see again some of these signs and wonders. Not because we figured it out, but because God wills to draw the hearts of men and women to him. And it's going to happen through his church. And his church is comprised of individuals. You and you and you and you and you and you and me. It starts here. It starts in our own personal renewal, in our lives being patterned into holiness, into our own spiritual desperation where we're crying out to the living God who is alive today. Lord, pour out your spirit upon your church. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord, fill me with boldness. Lord, attest to the truthfulness of your gospel by confirming your words now with power. That's where it's going to begin. It begins here. We can't just always think of the church as this kind of ethereal organization. You know, it's right here. This is the church. And so if we want to see it, it has to begin in us. All right, stop yelling. So one of the first truths that we see throughout the New Testament accounts of healing is faith, of course. Vital, it's necessary. The second is power. Luke 5.17 says that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal, is what Luke 5 says. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. This is the same word that Jesus himself uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the same Greek word. When Jesus tells the disciples to wait for the coming Holy, Holy Spirit, telling them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And that's an, that's an important last five words. You, six words, you will be my witnesses. The power is given for the witness of the gospel. The power is not given to make us feel good that we could somehow dabble in it as though we're conjuring or, you know, what is that, a necromancer, you know? No, no, no. The power is given to the church that the church would be the witness of God. We get our hearts in alignment with that, brothers and sisters. Get our hearts lined with the commission that the Lord has given to the church, and I believe we're going to begin to see the church ignited. The word here for power 
in the Greek as dunamis. You've heard this before. It's where we get the English word for what? Yeah, impotency. No. Dynamite. Dynamite. That's the word that's used. It's supposed to picture, it's give us this picture of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the church, that the church moves in this explosive and and material shifting and changing way through the work of the Holy Spirit. This comes back to what I spoke a couple of weeks ago. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to divinely enact change upon this present physical world through the power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, which he has sent to us in his spirit. Let me say that again. That was a lot of words. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to divinely enact change upon this present world through the power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, which the Holy Spirit was sent to us in. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, as Paul would say in Romans 8. The same spirit that raised Christ Christ from the dead now dwells within us, gives life to our mortal bodies. Number three, first was faith, the second was power. The third thing that we often see is compassion. I touched on this a, a moment ago when I was speaking about our theology of creation. What we believe about God's intent towards his creation ought to drive us to action. And Rick spoke about this also a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about contending prayer, to see, to see as Jesus sees, to be moved by the suffering of another. It causes us to engage in faith and to contend boldly for what we know is God's heart towards that person or towards that situation. Jesus did this often. Peter and John did this as well, as Rick spoke of in Acts 3 at the gate. Beautiful. Paul did this throughout his ministry journeys as well. Brothers and sisters, we should be doing this too. And I think Rick said where it was, Peter says, look at me. And he fixes his gaze on the man, not just because he needed to know who he was talking to, but in that moment, in that picture we have, just this engagement in faith with the man's plight and the man's condition and Paul being moved by the Spirit with all boldness, understands that it was God's will to show mercy to this man in the moment, and he speaks to him. Get up and walk. God healed through Jesus because he is a compassionate God, and he remains the same today. God is no less compassionate today than he was then. He's no less merciful today than he was then. And the fourth is sovereignty, and we'll just finish this quick. We see examples of this in Jesus' ministry as well as in the life of Paul where we don't question their faith. We don't question Jesus' faith, as I said in Mark 6. Jesus' faith wasn't the issue. Paul's faith wasn't the issue. We don't question whether or not they had it, and yet there's times that we don't see healing. It's just matter of fact. There's times when healing didn't actually take place. Whether it's the immediate, as in the case of Jesus with the blind man in Mark 8, where it's a progressive healing, or, or at all, as in the case of Paul's prayer for Epaphroditus, as I said a moment ago. In this, though, I think that it's important that we don't conclude that either lacked faith, because as I said, we know that's not true. But rather, we have to resign that it was not God's will in that moment for the healing to take place. Plain and simple. And we might have a hundred questions about that. But it's like salvation, and I've already said this before, it's like salvation. We don't know whom God will draw in that moment, but yet we are commanded to speak in every opportunity nonetheless. The same is true with prayer. We don't know whom God will heal in that moment, but yet we're called to pray with the same faith based on what we know to be true, which is everything that I've already said this morning, which is why I wanted to begin with this this theology building, if you will. Let's remember as we go, because God's sovereign, t- sovereign providence is at work in all of it. And we can't become disheartened when God doesn't do what we believe even he might do in that moment. We have to just continue to pray because we know that it's God's will to restore. Brothers and sisters, this aspect of kingdom life, it's a mystery, but it is precisely in our unknowing that we have the great benefit of engaging in a way that would never 
have come otherwise, and that's through faith. I just want to end with this one quote, and we're going to worship again. Why don't we have the musicians come on up at this time? This is from a, a, a man named Sam Storms. He says this, God is primarily concerned with the attitude of your heart and your compassion for the hurting and your dependence on him, not the style of sophistication with which you pray. God is concerned with the attitude of your heart, the compassion for the hurting, and your dependence on him. That's what God desires. And so as we pray, as we pray, let us hold in view of what we know to be true. And so that our faith isn't wavered or shaken, but that it remains engaged. And so that as we pray, we believe in faith. Lord, this is your will. We pray the will of God over a situation. And whether or not it happens, that is up to the Lord, but our obedience continues regardless. Amen? Believe in this with me, please. I'm asking that the Lord would use us in a mightier way for the glory of his name. Yeah, come on up. was uh, teaching in the, in the Acts 28 text. This, the Lord just showed me this. I want to remind you of this. On the island of Malta, the chief on the island is sick. Paul comes. He's on the island, the shipwreck. We know the story. Yeah. And it says in the text, it says, and Paul prayed and then laid his hands on him. Yeah. He prayed. I want to tell you why that's important. Have you ever put your hands on somebody and then began to pray for them for healing? And the longer you pray, the less faith you have. <laughs> You're looking, is anything happening? Is it... The issue for Paul was coming to faith and then compassion in his heart. And, and then when the laying on of hands, he released the life and the power of God in him through his faith. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes. It wasn't that he was praying, hoping that the longer he prayed, that more likely it would be that something might happen. It was that Jesus did this too. He prayed, and then he laid his hands on. He prayed, and then he spoke life. He prayed, and then he did it. He first came to the place of faith and compassion, and then he released the life through the laying on of hands. Think about that. Think about it. Think about it. Pray about it. That's good. That's it.